I'm Neil Pickett. Welcome to episode eight of Making Art. Each episode of Making Art features a conversation between me and a fellow artist about their life and how they do what they do. And in this episode, I'm back in an artist's studio with the playwright, Tom Holloway. I first met Tom as a schoolboy, well he was, who was fascinated by the theatre while I was performing in Tasmania in 1995. And with the encouragement from that beautiful Tasmanian actor and director, Robert Jarman, he went on to study playwriting at Australia's National Institute of Dramatic Art, or NIDA, in 2001, and furthered his studies at the home of the new wave of British theatre, that place that brought us John Osborne, Harold Pinter, Sarah Kane and others, the Royal Court, in 2006. His 2007 play, which looked at the Port Arthur Massacre, Beyond the Neck, was presented at Belvoir Street in Sydney and was awarded the Australian Writers Guild Award, the Augie, for Best Play. Red Sky Morning, written in 2008, was awarded the RE Ross Trust Script Award and a Green Room Award for Best New Play. And his 2010 work, And No More Shall We Part, went one better, winning both the Augie and also the Victorian Premier's Literary Award, Louis Essen Prize for Drama. Tom's also been responsible for a number of adaptations, including the Australian classic Storm Boy for the STC and that terrific noir thriller, Double Indemnity, for the MTC. I met Tom at his home in the Melbourne suburb of Preston, and after a brief chat, we retired to record our conversation in his garden shed, which has been lovingly converted into what I can only describe as a cross between a functioning office and a late 19th century man cave, complete with improvised skylights made from lemonade bottles, and what I have to say was a very comfortable armchair retrieved from the hard rubbish. Here's Tom Holloway, and I have to warn you, there's a bit of a false start, which was part of what went on, so I felt I should let you sit through it. Ladies and gentlemen, me, followed by Tom Holloway. What do you call this? We're in a shed. (laughs) I call it a shed office, which is a bad pun on, like, head office. Right. Like, I've... I've got to go and check it with you, shed office. <laughs> you don't do comedy, do you? <laughs> I've always um, been told by my friends that they'll either laugh out loud or roll their eyes and there's not much in between. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, was about, I was born to be a father in terms of my sense of humour, I think. Dad, dad jokes. jokes. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty good at dad jokes. They're either very offensive or they're dad jokes and there's not much room. Yeah. <laughs> When we were coming out here, well, earlier on, we were talking about uh, you write in here because it gets you, it's a sacred space for you, but you also, this morning, have been writing at Preston Market. What mm-hmm. What is it about Preston Market that stimulates your creative juices, if you like? Well, I like, I like feeling, like, connected to wherever I am. Um, and I think that maybe partly comes from coming from Tassie originally, which is such a, you know, wherever you are in Tasmania, you can't get away from the fact you're in Tasmania, right? Like, it's it's all around you, these big mountains or forest or whatever. Um, and so I like being around 
also as a writer you feel you, you spend a lot of your time on your own so it's very easy to feel very disconnected mm. um, and very isolated and you know we're in this this shed which also is quite little and calling it a shed is probably being generous to it um, and quite dark and so all that can be quite isolating too you know and yet you know when we work in theatre it's all about people and conflict and uh, you can spend all your time disconnected from people so I like going to Preston Market for a whole range of reasons one I really like I just like the environment I like how kind of um, daggy it is or um, there's no pretensions to it uh, it clearly serves the Preston community like everything there is set up just for the Preston community it's starting to change as people like me are moving into the area you know I'm, I'm uh, an example of <laughs> kind of you know the um, gentrification I guess um, but so there's chance there's ways that the market's starting to change but it feels really rooted to this place mm. Uh, so I really like that, and I like sitting there and looking at the people and kind of seeing their their patterns of behaviour. You know, as does that does Wednesdays. that actually end up on the page? Do, do those things trigger things for you in your writing? The people's patterns of behaviour, interactions that yeah. you see taking place. Well, I certainly think. I mean, that's a really good question. It, I'm almost a kind of great lover of. Um, the mundanity of life and how it continues even in the extraordinary moments of life. Um, both in, like, you know, when when the love, the loving relationship of your life is coming to an end, you're noticing that the tea bag is kind of steering it. You start fiddling with the tea bag in your teacup and stuff while you're saying, no, I don't think we should ever be together again and things like that. You know, I, I like these connections to the the normal everyday life and that they're the things that make the extraordinary moments stand out um, and so when you're at Preston Market you're just seeing this around all the time and you're seeing that happen too you'd see someone um, uh, oh, you know there was a, a time when there was um, a person that I'd watched who was sitting down on their own at a table nearby and they'd just probably been there all morning like I had been there all morning and they just kind of threw they had a paper coffee cup and half a roll and they just kind of picked it up and threw it down on the ground near them and stormed off and I couldn't like what had happened in that moment you know what what had been building through the hour or so beforehand excuse me I've just got a blood nose can I stop for a second I'm sorry about that Give me one minute. Yeah. He's run off to get um, something. He's got a little blood nose. And, um, and I brought some cakes. So there's a chocolate eclair that um, we've cut up into bits. It's from a very good pastry shop in Balaclava. And he's running back. I'm eating the the, uh, the eclair. I'm still eating the eclair. He's not back. Well, here he comes. So, um, on the weekend, my little nieces were here. I was 
was playing with them and I don't really know how to, I only really know how to play a lot, you know, not just a little bit. And they were trying to steal, like, steal my nose and they squeezed it so hard that on a tram I got a bleeding, a blood nose. Uh, and it's been going like that ever since. <laughs> so I'm sorry that it started. So these, nieces, like these nieces have, um, have mortally wounded you? <laughs> they have, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How old are they? Uh, three and six. They are very dangerous at that age. Oh, man. And those two, they're like uh, extreme sports <laughs> children. Extreme sports nose squeeze. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, what is this? Is it still recording? Yeah. So um, uh, this person just kind of yelled and threw this stuff on the ground. And who knows what was going on in their life, right? Who knows knows what caused them to do that in that moment. Um, but a play, but, a play can be like that, can't it? Oh. Because you can have a play that journeys through for an hour yeah. and apparently nothing happens, yeah. but the weight of whatever that is yeah. lands in that moment. Yeah. And that's what we sit there for, we wait for Absolutely. that Absolutely. And, and in that moment, um, they stormed off and, you know, I got to sit there and watch how the rest of the people around in the uh, the other tables and things reacted to it. You know, there's the shock, um, the the ripples of it, the kind of silence, and then the nattering to each other, and then kind of their conversations from before it happens slowly start to filter back in as normal life goes on like nothing had happened. And so that kind of stuff I watch all the time and just kind of reminds me about the importance of those moments. I haven't yet kind of followed a character, followed a person and let that feed into a direct character that I'm writing or anything like that. Um, uh, because the, the other side of working there is using it as a, again, a bit like little kids, like, like white noise helps them kind of concentrate or sleep and things. Like, it becomes a, a general background noise that really helps me focus in on what I'm working on. You said earlier on um, this idea of being in isolation. Yeah. And I often wonder, because it's such a collaborative medium. Yeah, yeah. And there is this disconnect these days, isn't there, between you guys and us? Yeah. I mean, you, you you get commissioned, you go away, you write a play, then we come in and we yeah. read it. And how do you find that? Have you have you ever worked in a different way? Um, I I don't enjoy it. I the re, the the thing that kind of drew me to theatre really was as a kid, I was a big lover of team sports um, and creative things. And theatre seemed to be the best way to combine those those loves. Like I love the team aspect of it and the ensemble nature of it and I always feel better when I'm a, a member of a kind of a unit than working off on my own and I just kind of accidentally took on the part of the ensemble that is least connected to the others unfortunately I guess it was the thing that I had the most skill in for want of a better way of describing it um, and there are there are there are other ways that I work. I mean, I work in opera too with a composer, a Czech composer, um, and I love that because it's because I'm in it with him. 
you know, from the word go. And it's still, it's all done through kind of Skype or the internet or something. But with their, really with that pro, with working with Mirek, from as soon as we've got a job, we're doing it all together. And you're responding to each and other. We're responding to each other. So my writing of a libretto is done really very alongside him. Um, and as he's developing the music, he feeds back into what he needs or, or, or is working now or wasn't, isn't working now in the libretto. And so it's much more back and forth, and I really like that. I also really like working um, closely and kind of robustly with dramaturgs and directors um, because I also feel like I write best when I'm being really challenged and really pushed. I'm not, at times I worry that I get a bit lazy if left to my own devices. Um, and so I, I like that too. I've had a few projects where I've been kind of a writer um, that's brought into a room where things are being devised and things. And I've really enjoyed those, but each time I've, I feel like there hasn't been the, the, like, 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 um, what am I trying to say? That takes time. Mm. And you can't do that in your typical kind of four to five week rehearsal process, which is the process that I've kind of been involved in. Like, let's create this show from scratch, from the first day of rehearsals to when it's going on stage over four or five weeks, which I just don't think can be done like that if you're including the written text too, because things need to be kind of improvised or devised, then there needs to be time to go away and write and bring it back in and find a way of integrating it in with the rest of the improvised stuff. And then that will have, once you see it integrated, that will change how um, the written text again and need more work. And I just don't think that that can work in that kind of four or five week period. So um, uh, Michael, Michael Lee, the famous English, director who kind of devises all his shows but he gets like 13 week rehearsal processes and so of course his shows seem incredible and amazing because he's had so much time um, to be able to follow an idea and throw it out and start again working in a devised fashion over four or five weeks you, you kind of have to go with the first choices that come up because there's not the time to really throw it out and start again because when a play, a written play has reached the rehearsal room, it's already been workshopped and um, gone through draft after draft after draft but if you're trying to fit that into the five weeks of the rehearsals then, I don't know, the thing that's going to be on stage is going to be, it's going to be very hard for it to feel like a finished work by opening night. How long would it take you uh, from where to go? First thing, actually, rather than answer that question, yeah. uh, as you deal with your bleeding nose, yeah, excuse me. Yeah. Um, and he's a real trooper, he's pressing on regardless. <laughs> where do the ideas come from? Um, In you. Well, Let's... this is like, yeah, it'd be an interesting question to ask you too, because now that I'm... Get, that I've got to do it, you know, as a job, that a for, like a formality kind of comes to it. Like, you know, um, ideas are literally brought to me by by theatre companies and things. Like I did an adaptation of Stormboy, which was an idea that was brought to me and those kind of things kind of happen and it's so wonderful when they do happen and sometimes ideas come and I, 
are brought to me and I think I don't know if I am the writer for that so I'll turn it down and it will go on to have a great success with other writers uh, which is good um, you you say that through gritted teeth <laughs> well no it is I mean it is good because the reason why I would why I turn them down is because I don't think I'm the right writer for them and then when you see a, that a company's gone and got another writer and the adaptation or whatever it is has three or four lives it clearly has found the right writer mm. but I don't think you should do an adaptation unless unless you absolutely love the original work and what is it that you're looking for then when you if you someone hands you something to adapt what what, what makes you love it do you think I know that's a very general no question, no I, I get it like I think there's a thrill I think that there's um where if I'm reading something um there's a moment of kind of shock or surprise for me that that i feel from the original material that i want to then share with the rest of the than a theater audience plus also thinking is theater the right medium for this like just like a great book doesn't necessarily make a great stage no, i've seen a lot of film yeah very bad adaptations yeah definitely books. and you've got to you've got to really kind of rewrite it you know you've got to um it's got to be a good play <laughs> um otherwise what's the point mm. um uh, so like if if i feel f scared of adapting it because of the thrill i felt in reading it i think that's always a good sign if i've spent the whole time reading it thinking ah oh, i feel like i know where this is going and um, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm outside these characters and things, then I think I'm not the person to adapt this. If I'm getting lost in the book, in a good way, like caught up in the book, then I think that's that means that there's an excitement there in me to share with the audience. Whereas if I don't have an excitement, if I don't feel excited about the original material, then no matter how hard I work, that will make its that lack of excitement will make its way into my adaptation and a theatre audience will pick up on it. And they pay too much money to to not have someone that is kind of putting so much, as much love and excitement into the adaptation as they possibly can. You know, theatre's not cheap for our audiences and they, we should be giving them the best thing, the best possible version we can every single time. Do you think the system is set up to do that? Or is the system set up to make that more difficult? In this country I'm talking about. Uh, look, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the best system for that is. Um, I'll give that a shot and see if it stopped bleeding. Um, I think I think one thing is that it can feel very hard to say no to jobs. Um, I'm not sure if that's quite the question you're asking, but I think it's uh, jobs are so hard to come by to turn a job down feels very counterintuitive and can be very very hard to do i think that's the same for anybody in the creative world De yeah i mean yeah. I, I spent the first 20 years 15 say of my career never, yeah. never having holiday <laughs> yeah oh, <laughs> i know because what you mean. yeah if someone offered me a job i had to take it yeah yeah and you don't think to take a holiday either i mean i don't know if that was the same for you but it's like someone has to tell me 
to take a holiday. It was my, my wife, my ex-wife, mm. who one day just said, we're going to go to New Zealand on a holiday. Yeah. I said, could you spell that for me, know, please? Yeah. Yeah, it feels like, can feel like such a foreign and bizarre complex. And I didn't concept. enjoy it. To be honest, I didn't enjoy yeah, the holiday because I spent my whole time wondering about what was happening back in Melbourne. You know? And when you that that stuff that you were wondering about was that wondering about the jobs you weren't getting because for an actor it's different, right? Like you you can be so dependent on um, on people bringing the work to you, or you know, you, it's harder for you to create the work. If I don't have a paid job, I can be sitting down and at least trying to write something. Yeah, it's very difficult. We don't. Uh, you can sit at home, or sit at sit at home reading Shakespeare to yourself, or yeah, exactly. Like yeah. So but when you're in New Zealand, were you thinking people might be calling my phone and I'm not there to answer it? I think yes, but only out of habit. Yeah. The reality is, of course, that 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 yeah. doesn't happen. Yeah. And it wouldn't happen if I was in Melbourne, and it's not going to happen if I'm in New Zealand. Yeah. But there is something ingrained in you as a young performer that says if someone offers you a job, you've got to take it because they are so scarce, particularly yeah. when you're young and there's so many people around. Yeah. Uh, and you're just one of many. If someone oh, actually yeah. offers you a job, you go, ooh. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got to jump on this and make the most of it. You know, there's some... I can see... I mean, the other people that want the jobs are my friends. <laughs> they're, mm. they're the people literally in my lives. And so you've got to... And then you have to endure the, if they get it yeah. and you're away, you have to endure the 12 weeks of them yeah. celebrating that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we were... And, and, you know, we're inherently not very generous <laughs> towards each other in, the, in those early days, I don't think. I know, I, it's, it's interesting. I think um, I used to, there were certain writers in my, of my kind of age group that I used to, um, like... Uh, I don't say pit myself against, but um, strive to to match or something yeah. in terms of opportunities and things. And but the the stupid thing is, we're vastly different writers, and so you're going, you know, you're not going to pick me for the same kind of job you'd pick one of the others from my generation because we're all really, really quite different writers. Um, but you still feel that. The other thing I'd say about that is. I would, f like that, I also found it inspiring. I found, like, it, having a goal of uh, so-and-so's just got a play on at this company and that means that, that really means I've got to work hard to get to that level too. Like, it was something that really gave me extra kind of momentum to move forwards as opposed to simply kind of great jealousy or frustration. I mean... Yeah, I don't think it for me was ever jealousy, but it was that... I think in early days you kind of go, well, will I make it? Am oh. I good enough? Uh, and you look at every opportunity as an opportunity for you to incrementally mm. prove, not necessarily to everybody else, but to yeah. yourself that and you that, yeah. that you are worthy. I mean, I think this term you just use, um, am I going to make it? Like, like it, it's something we all say to ourselves, but no one could probably define what it is no it's like get making it to getting there yeah what is there yeah. and once like if you as a playwright if you get um you know if you've if you've worked well and um have been lucky enough to have like success at independent level and perhaps get your first 
Griffin show or, or on a theatre that's about the same size but at a professional level you think um, this is fantastic this is what I've been aiming for for years but then as soon as you get there you think well now that I'm here I've got to be um, getting to uh, Belvoir or in a Melbourne context maybe you've been able to have a show at the Beckett but you haven't had a Merlin show and then you so you've got to like the goalposts change right and I think I think they sh they should too because um, because we we have to keep challenging ourselves to write better and part of that is to write is to successfully write for bigger stages and part of it is much more um, simply kind of I don't know qualitative like what can you do now that you've had this experience what can you do better in your writing because of having that experience of having it on that stage or finally get to see a show that has a life of four or five weeks as opposed to four or five performances and something because you learn so much more seeing your show over a period like that. Or return seasons. And return or, seasons. Or other productions. And, yeah, I mean, the as a playwright, that's such a particular thing because a first production you'd be quite heavily involved in but a second production or even a remount you're not going to be so very much involved in. Do you do you take that first production and look at it and then refine the work before it gets yeah. published or Yeah, I do. Well, I mean, often the publishing process in Australia for plays is often difficult because most plays get published as the pro if you if you get published, you get published as the program for the first season. Mm. So actually the published play is probably the published script is probably the script as it stood halfway through the rehearsal process because there's a timeline to getting it printed too. I do use the first production to then afterwards sit down and, well, I tell myself I give myself one rewrite after a first production and then try to consider it kind of locked off for myself so I'm moving on to other shows, how much that necessarily happens... Do you do that on your own or do you do that in collaboration with a dramaturg or a director or...? That period after the... Um, that kind of rewrite after a production would be pretty much on my own, but during the season I'd be talking to the actors a lot during the season or talking to the director as they're coming back in and kind of regularly talking about what's working and what's not working and what needs to change. And Sometimes changes are made during a season because also so much emphasis is put on getting things ready for production week and opening night but actually a play's not produced for production week and opening night it's produced for the season and the general public season and there's so much kind of excitement and nerves and anxiety over that production week and opening night that you don't really see you don't see the play. I don't go. I don't, yeah. I don't like going to an opening night because I don't see the play. I just I see a, a kind of version of the play, but not not something that you would yeah. call indicative. I, there's a lot of there's too much energy and too much. There's nerves. Yeah. There's is it going to work? Uh, so and then the surprise that comes when it does work, yeah. which I love. Yeah. But you don't actually see the play. You see people kind of reeling from one moment to the next in a lot of ways. And so from when you're particularly with the new work. And when you're the the one of the people on stage, is it does it then ease into that, or is it like opening night's gone and now we all relax? Well, I'm a bit of a funny one because I actually I don't I I. 
The performance changes for me when I put it in front of an audience. Yeah, you know, sure. So I find it hard to imagine an audience sitting in a rehearsal room and sitting, you know, when yeah. we're all there and there's... Yeah. And they're saying, put a little bit more into it. And yeah. I kind of think, well, what for? <laughs> oh, I mean, because I feel, it is yeah. such an important part of the dynamic of performance is the audience. And I feel like from being outside, you can see it in actors. You can see how much things lift. Mm. As soon as, like even just when the first preview audience comes in, there is a, a noticeable shift in what happens on stage. And of course there is, because as you're saying, you can't imagine anywhere between 80 and 800 people sitting in front of you. No, and I think the thing for us is that that it, it is written to be performed in front of an audience, so clearly you're not really going to know how it works yeah. as a piece of writing until it is in front of an audience, yeah. and that's an ongoing process yeah. of learning. You know, something that I've I noticed a lot when working with Mirek, um, the composer, and working in opera is how imperfect theatre is and that's kind of one of its great strengths you know them a uh, a performance of an opera or a piece of music is kind of or literally orchestrated down to the kind of millisecond um, but a performance in theatre um, can change by five ten minutes night to night depending on how mm. the actors kind of relationship with the audience changes for better or worse but I kind of like that I like the roughness of that the lack of um, kind of I, the, the fluidity of it can be can mm. be can be too fluid sometimes oh sure sure but there's a risk there's like a danger there which I quite I quite like That's the beguiling voice of the Irish mezzo-soprano Tara O'Rourke singing the role of the wife of the polar explorer Robert Scott and Modka Erdmann, who's a German soprano, singing the role of Edmondson's wife. Now, they appeared in an opera called The South Pole about that ill-fated attempt of Scott to race Edmondson to the South Pole, which premiered with the Bavarian State Opera in 2016 an opera with music by the Czech composer Miroslav Schrenka, and I hope I pronounced that right, and libretto by formerly Tasmania, but now Melbourne's own, or rather Preston's own, Tom Holloway. You're listening to episode eight of Making Art. Making Art is released alongside a companion article about the featured artist written by me and first published in the Daily Review. And the Daily Review is Australia's premier free online arts news and opinion site, and it's totally, totally self-supporting, relying on you, the reader, to keep it going. So if you're a fan of quality arts journalism, which I am, I encourage you to get online and have a look, and you can read articles by the wonderful, witty Helen Razor, the well-known barrister and arts patron, Julian Burnside QC, who's a regular contributor, and me, I write a bit. And while you're there, click on the menu and head to the support page and please consider a modest contribution 
that will help maintain quality arts journalism as part of the national discourse. The Daily Review, like this podcast, is free. Yes, folks, free. And I know, look, you love free things, but the truth is that nothing made costs nothing to make. All we ask is that you pay what you can. Make a gold coin donation and it will probably also go to help pay for the production of this podcast. And that is the end of the cell. So after a short break for, yes, a cigarette and a bit of casual weeding in the veggie garden, I confess I love a good weed, Tom had a quick check of that injured nose and we returned to the man cave. You're just talking about, um, in the little break we just had, Mm. about um, this project we're working on about Kosovo. Um, And I asked you earlier on where the ideas come from. Yeah. But but if I think back over your kind of place that I know, for instance, something like Fatherland, Mm. which dealt with incest, um... No more shall we part. Mm. Dealt with euthanasia and euthanasia, and now you're looking at Kosovo and refugees. Mm. Uh, There was um, Martin Bryant. Yeah, beyond the neck. Beyond the neck. Mm. They're pretty tough topics. What draws you to those sorts of topics? Do you think? Um, I think. uh, And don't say it's because I'm Tasmanian. (laughs) Well, I mean, part of part of. Part of it is wanting to tell Tasmanian stories, which is why I wanted to do this one too, because this is also actually a story about Tasmanians acting like in a way that the rest of the country would not expect, which is with a kind of warmth and, and generosity um, and eagerness to be to kind of build relationships with the rest of the world and things like that. So that's an important thing that I want to um, celebrate. But I, th- I think I'd s- I, in some ways, I accidentally wrote um, Beyond the Neck about the Port Arthur massacre, in that I, I didn't know what I was getting into when I did it. I was in London and talking to a writing teacher that I had, and said, "Oh, I'm thinking of writing about this," and he said, "Oh, you should definitely do it." So I started to do it, and quite soon into it realised I hadn't really thought about what that meant you know as I wrote to people that had been involved in the massacre, family members of victims or survivors or people who worked at the site or things like that when I started to sit down and meet with them it only just really occurred to me what I had gotten into Um, but that experience was so amazing. The the things that I learnt were so overwhelming um, and kind of positive. And then seeing the impact that putting a play on about a subject matter that was, you know, so sensitive and seeing how a Tasmanian audience responded to it, um, help me see that theatre can actually make an, a real genuine difference that the fact it is, it takes a community to put it on and it's on there for a community and it's kind of a, a safe place to deal with these 
incredibly difficult subject matters. You know, I kind of realised that theatre was empathy training, really, that the point of it was to let us all have a safe place to to learn about those different to ourselves. Uh, and it should also be incredibly entertaining and funny and all that kind of stuff too, because that's all part of um, growing empathy as well, you know, laughing with someone. Um, and then it, it, so it just kind of went on from, from there, wanting to tell the stories, any story that seemed scary to me made me want to explore it to find out why it was scary for me and then share that with, with others. Um, and at times I feel like I've done it more successfully than others, like the, um, the play you mentioned, Fatherland, which hasn't had an Australian life. They got a season with the gays in, in, in London. London. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that show went to Germany too, the London production went to Germany as well. Um, but that, for instance, that production came very last minute. The, the person who directed it, um, great director, and I were pitching to adapt something, um, and the gate said, look, we, we really like you guys as a team, um, we've just had a show fall over, um, do you have anything that you could do in January? And this was in October that we were talking to them. And so I had written a draft of that for myself, you know, done a bit of research, met with a few doctors and um, victims and uh, someone who worked with perpetrators in prison because it's about kind of, yeah, interfamilial inter sexual abuse and um, wrote a draft of it and then went, oh, I don't, I feel very scared about this and put it in the bottom of the drawer. And then when that opportunity came up, it, like I gave Caroline, the director, a pile of things and that was the one that she responded to and they responded to, which was awesome, but it did mean that I then only had really two months to get the script ready for rehearsals and with a subject that was that important, like that important, that sensitive, that difficult. And that layered, I'd imagine. Yeah. It's not, it's not sort of, well, this happens and that happens. Is no, it? no. And if you're going to write about something like that, you've got to be... You can't write about something like that and simply say um, sexual abusers are demons um, and uh, and victims. You, 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 we can't. You can't tell the story that everyone thinks you're going to tell. That it's got to be much more complex than that. Because the reality of these things are far more complex. And if it's interfamilial child sexual abuse, you know there are years of grooming that have gone there, on there, and years of where the idea of of love is confused for both parties. I mean, no. I think. No one makes the choice. Uh, well, some people make the choice to be perpetrators and things like that, and they're sociopaths. But there are far more perpetrators out there than there are sociopaths in society, and there are people that um, that for me to be able to really tell the story, I've got to understand what leads those people that aren't sociopaths to do it, because they're closer to us, and so there's something that we've got to try to understand there to make sure it doesn't happen again you know I, and that is incredibly complicated right so do you see so you so you feel and for instance i just don't think i quite was able to 
do the best job that I should on that play because I said yes to this thing because it came up where really looking back on it, thought to take on such a difficult subject matter, you've got to make sure you can you have all the time and resources to do it. Have you revisited that piece or has that just um, sat back, gone back into the drawer? A little bit, but mainly it's gone back into the drawer because because I guess I feel scared about it. You know, um, in one of the performances of it in London, uh, this elderly man <coughs> got up and kind of stumbled down the aisle and collapsed on the side and had to be taken out by an usher and then when the usher took him out and then sat him down to, and went to get him some water, when they came back he was just gone. And I don't know if he was... Something about the play had affected him very severely, very significantly. Whether he was um, a victim and it was bringing back kind of terrible memories or the other, or he was a, a kind of perpetrator and there was something about being confronted with it that um, that meant that kind of guilt led to this kind of response. Uh, whatever it was, if you're going to put something in the world out about that kind of subject matter, you need to be aware that there are going to be, be people in the audience for whom this is not just going to be a night out at the theatre. Mm. Um, and so you've got to... You've got to build that into how you write the play, right? And I don't... And I think... Um, like, I, I'm, I'm kind of proud of that play and that production, but I do know that I could have done better. And that... And so I have not pursued other lives for that play yet because I feel like if, if it is to be seen again, it needs... I need to make sure I've done the most thorough job that I possibly can in making sure it is doing exactly what I want it to do so it can't be misconstrued. And then, of course, on the flip side of things like Fatherland and is something like Double Indemnity. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I think, the last play of yours I saw, which is an adaptation yeah. of the novel, the yeah. 1940s novel, I think, isn't it? 1930s by 30s. James M. Cain, yeah. Which was made into a film, a famous film, of yes. course. Um, and I did... I actually pitched that job. I got the rights to the book myself and pitched it to MTC actually because I want to write this Kosovo play. Um, but I knew that I needed to learn how to write for a bigger stage um, and I needed... and I knew that it would be a great risk for uh, a company the size of MTC to commission a writer like at my level for a big stage With without, an original project. With an original project, yeah. And so... And I, I, I knew that if I was... Like this thing that I was saying to you earlier, I can't remember if it was while we were recording or not, which is if you're going to do an adaptation, you've got to love it. Um, and so I pitched that because I thought, this is a, a work that I love, this is a genre that I love. And actually at the heart of kind of hardball detective and film noir is really serious kind of very large, complex questions about the kind of... Well, about morality and values. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so it's still in this kind of world of the things that are in kind of my more serious plays, I guess. Uh, and yet I, I just love it. Like, the language in that book... I mean, a lot of my adaptation was taken straight from the book because James N. Cain's language is so incredible and so enjoyable and so much like music. And, and, the, and quite theatrical. It was so theatrical, yeah. Yeah, you know, there's this great speech that... Um, 
uh, this famous speech that Edward G. Robinson does in the film too about the the what the actuaries, the kind of insurance books say about how people commit suicide um, and how it never happens on the back of a slow-moving train. And it's like there's a, you know, there's... The actuaries talk about uh, suicide by poison and suicide by poison divided by strychnine and, and all the other types of poison and suicide by shotgun. And and the, it's like an aria, right? Like the, the way Kane has written it, it's so tight... And so, um, and, and so well uh, mapped out the journey of the language of the words, the, the length of the words kind of grows as he's getting more and more carried away into it. It's such beautiful writing. It really, to me, feels like an aria. And that, and that I love that. I love writing like that. I love writing that feels performance writing that feels like music that that affects you like a piece of music can affect you. That can both kind of advance the story and advance a character, but also wash over you in that thrilling way that music can wash over you. Mm. And so, yes, part of pitching that to them was about giving myself a chance to learn, but also just wanting, if I'm, if I'm going to do that and it's going to be about this existing material, it's going to be want to be about something that I really love. And the other thing about Double Indemnity is it's kind of post... Um, uh, it's, it's kind of during the depression. Really, what's happened there is uh, a lot of the world, a lot of American society has kind of collapsed, and that has pushed people to desperate choices around what to do around kind of money and greed and safety and all that kind of stuff. And this, and I pitched it to them in maybe 2013 or something like that. We were still kind of, yeah, in the aftermath of the GFC and I thought there was interesting um, choices to be made there. I also thought there's something um, to be said about the femme fatale for the modern world where the femme fatale was always this, you know, crazed, you know... Crazy broad. Crazy broad. Yeah. But actually, most <laughs> of the time, they've been absolutely oppressed by the men in their lives and they finally pushed to these extreme acts because it's the only way that they feel they have left to kind of lash out at the world that has treated them so poorly. And so I wanted to try to make a, like a, an ang a strong, angry Phyllis um, that knew exactly why she was doing the things that she was doing. Whereas in the film, she, do she does get a bit, and in the book too, she's a bit, like, mad. Mm. Is what what is the difference then to take it to writing for the big stage for you? I yeah. mean, I know what it is to perform. Oh well, I'd love to hear about that. I mean, I from one of the things I've noticed through that and through again going back to the opera work is um is there a is there is more room for for statements on a big stage? In fact, there's kind of a need for it at times to say. Um, this is exactly where we are and this is exactly what's happened and what's going to happen next because um, uh, subtleties can be lost. You know, subtleties in a, on a small stage um, are what a small stage is all about. I love the way of trying to still build um, subtleties into a large stage. You know, if you can get a moment where a theatre of 800 people are hanging on a silence, 
Fantastic. I think that's that's absolutely wonderful. And also with a bigger cast, there's just more music that can be had too in terms of what you can do with dialogue. And and what you can do with space is the other yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. This is what we look at, or what I look at, is yeah. you know, what I can do with space. So what do you do as an actor on a, on a bigger stage like that? Like, I mean, the last thing I saw you in was Red Stitch, right? Like a very you, small stage. A very, very small stage. A postage stage. stamp. And what do you, what do, you do to to change what you can communicate about your character to an audience? I think you look for pillars. And it's, it's a, so that's a bit like, like statements, like, yeah, right. A bit like what you're saying. And if you can get the pillars right and get them placed in the right mm. places, so it's about creating that overarching arc yeah, right. of the story and you use your pillars to create that mm. arc <laughs> and then you can subtly work your way between the pillars, if you know what I mean. You can create yeah. the latticework that... that that adorns the gaps between those pillars, yeah. if you like. And That's so great to hear. I mean, that is that, that is so much like what I took from that experience. It's it's really reassuring to hear you say that too. Yeah. And 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 as you say, a, a, a silence. Mm. And then you combine silence with where you are in the space. Mm. Yeah. And you can say an awful lot by not doing anything. Yeah. But you can say a different thing being right down the front than you say being right up the back in the in the left hand corner, if you yeah. know what I mean. Yeah. Um, which obviously you don't write. You don't write where he. St- well, you can write where he stands. He stands at the front of the stage. I've seen that direction. Yeah. Yeah. I try not to. Uh, I've tried to put any stage directions in my work. I try to only include if for me they're as important as. A spoken line, you know, if they're mm-hmm. communicating as much as a spoken line, um, as opposed to, you know, yeah, try to direct or design a show. So I think um, I don't, I don't know if I'm actually the most skilled to to know the best place to tell an actor where to stand. I don't know. I mean, an, an actor is probably the best person to tell an actor where to stand. Um, yeah, I mean, lots of writers do it, but I'm. Um, I think the thing about being on that big stage is you pick your moments. You can have every moment you like on a small stage, mm. but on a big stage you've really got to pick your moments. You can also disguise, like you can disguise things on a big stage, which I found interesting. You can, because there is so much for an audience to take in, <coughs> you can have things happen in front of them that perhaps they're not necessarily aware is happening in front of them, which can then in affect their experience of the story later on. I think you can do that much more than you can on a small stage where they take in every single little detail. And again, going back to the acting, like even I imagine down to, for you guys, like an audience is hanging on every raise of an eyebrow on a small stage. Well, depending on how technical you are, and I'm pretty technical, it can be how I move a finger. And what, what has led you to be kind of a technical performer, do you think? Well, I'm, I'm wanting to move away from that now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but what led me to it was I, I needed structure. I needed something to hang the emotional fabric of what I was doing on. Mm. And, uh, and I needed to be able to construct that narrative and construct that arc mm. and technique is a way of doing that and you've got to use all the tools that are available. Mm. See, so you, you know, you write in words. Uh, words are only about 10% of the, the overall experience yeah. of communication. Yeah. There's paraverbal, which is uh, about 
20%, I think, or something like that, which is tone and mm -hmm. uh, intonation. And then the rest of it's physical. Yeah. So to ignore the physicality of... And that's why I like... Sorry, I'm going to doff my lid to you. I love the physicality of the language. Mm. Because the, la the physical language... And you talk about uh, uh, double indemnity, the aria. Mm -hmm. That language helps you to understand the other ways that you're communicating, if you like. Sure, but you've got to have yeah. an understanding of that technical aspect yeah. of it to appreciate the way to... You can see it building through the language. Well, that's I certainly see that as one of my... the tools that I have to use to communicate is... Um, is not just what a character is saying, but how they're saying it and how they're struggling to say it or avoiding to say it or... Um, uh, unable to quite find the right words or, or saying it again and again and again and again because it's either not getting through to the other people or to themselves. As you say that you're trying to move away from being a technical actor, what... What does that mean? Yeah. That means allowing... means using that. that I'll always be like that but allowing a more natural flow of the other thing rather than a constricted or, or controlled flow of the other thing. Right. Trusting in the, trusting in the technique, trusting in the, yeah. in, the, in the structure, and then allowing the other elements to have their head. So going back to the, your pillars analogy, because I imagine there are pillars in a small space too, they're just different types. They're not quite as big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is it the they don't. The big ones, the really big ones, don't fit in. And in that, in the way that you performed in the past, that technical way, would you kind of build these pillars and then fill in the gaps? And now you're trying to let the kind of find the pillars. Well, I guess my. Space? I think in some ways my lattice work is kind of quite industrial, if right. you know what I mean. It's sort of it. it it's looking more for a, 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 a more natural pattern of lattice rather than. What I yeah if I, right. if I was to visually describe yeah. it, a more ramshackle, yeah, less structured lattice mm. work, if you like, mm. a more naturally evolving lattice. Yeah, nice. Um, that also made, just made me think that a, a yeah writing teacher that I had once said something like um, uh, he'd realised that um, uh, kind of every writer only has kind of one type of story in them and no matter what they're writing about they're really writing about that that one thing and for me I, it's probably loss um, if I look back over everything that the things that I'm always drawn to with any character is kind of what or who they've lost and what it impact how it impacts them is there something like that for actors I don't know whether it's the the kind of characters you're drawn to or I think it from, from well, I can only say for me. I can't say for other actors, but for me, it's it's always been. I find this a very difficult world. I right. find this a very difficult place that we live in. I don't understand it, mm. and I don't understand my place in it. Mm. And I, I know my place in it, but I don't understand how it all fits together. And if I look at something like Tom Paine, for example. Mm. Uh, it's kind of like a stream of consciousness existential crisis about mm. being a 21st century male and I think it's a very, you know, um, 
how much do you feel? Mm. When do you feel? What do you feel? Mm. These questions that, that I think are in this complex world are mm. very difficult ones to answer. So are you drawn to moments of clarity because of that or are you actually drawn to moments of um, kind of accepting the lack of clarity or being overwhelmed? I think I'm at times reassured by the characters I play uh, by, by their lack of clarity. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> it makes me feel all right about myself, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, th I, I would agree with that, and I think it's it's actually moments of lack of clarity that unite us all, that we that we can all relate to. In a world to. that sort of is, is pretending, in some ways, to offer some sense of certainty, which there just mm -hmm. isn't. Yeah. Um, and it's that wrestling with allowing ourselves to embrace the uncertain nature yeah. of, I mean yes the sun will come up tomorrow presumably it has been doing it for a while yeah. and I know that that but aside from that I really don't have a, mm. I have a plan about what might happen tomorrow but I've got mm. no guarantees yeah. done whatsoever although it is interesting that kind of one of the great kind of global fears at the moment is absolutely about whether the sun will rise tomorrow you know it's about the existence of our earth and our life that is our great fear at the moment mm. which is fairly terrifying so mm. the Kosovo thing mm. yeah. just give me a sense then you've been working on this now for how long well I, I pitched it to like it's been an idea that I've had for years mm. because I was this is uh, Kosovo refugees that were in Tasmania in 1999 and 2000 and I was like 18, 19 at the time and I always remembered it very kind of vividly because it was um, you know the, the Murdoch newspaper welcomed them with a um, letter written in Albanian on the front page of the paper saying your country is a mountainous country steeped in history and our land is a mountainous land steeped in history and please treat our land like your land like this is a Murdoch newspaper saying that to Muslim refugees none no less but it that that kind of warmth really had stayed with me and I'd wanted to write about it so I had this idea and then I pitched it to them 18 months ago but I only found out that I that they were saying yes to it in May, late May, I think. That's so a long process. That's a long process. I mean, how do you deal with that uncertainty of, of, of that process? Um, I... Well, On the subject of certainty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I always have... A, a, try to have a lot of projects on the go at once. I mean, there's this practical side to that, which is you never know what project is going to have a life and what isn't. So I always have anywhere between kind of five and ten things going at a time I would say um, part of that also helps me because if I hit a block with one I can move on to another really easily at the worst of it though you're awake at 3am because you've got ten worlds in your head and you're not really sure how you're going to resolve any of them and um, kind of get into a bit of a split state of split personality I think um, uh, and you kind of, you just have to kind of embrace uncertainty in our lives, right? Like, there's, 
there's nothing else that you can do. You, like there's so so much of your fate is out of your hands that all you can do is as much as you can. I mean, what a funny thing to say. All you can do is as much as you can. But but if you start to fear the uncertainty, which I certainly have at times. I mean, I've I spent the last... I spent a good year or so recently feeling really burnt out and fearing what I have left in me. Um, and because there is so much in our lives to reinforce those fears, when they come in, when they kind of trickle into your head it can very quickly become a flood mm. so we've got to work very hard to to kind of block them out as as much as possible staying on the front foot and doing all that and so having a bunch of projects on the go helps me uh do all that but i don't know i mean i don't know if there is a real like it's scary and that's all there is to it really like i don't know if there's I don't know if one can completely protect oneself from the lack of security and lack of control in our kind of work. Yeah. But the alternative? I mean, I don't know, I don't know what the alternative is. Um, well, that's exactly it, really. Yeah. It's, 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 for, kind of it's a compulsion, really, isn't it, at all? Well, I it's hard. Do, it's, do you feel that a compulsion? I've... Um, to tell stories? Uh, I absolutely do. Um, but, and part of that is this kind of, you know, mythical muse, I'm not in control of it kind of element to it. But also, it, I've been lucky that I've got to do it day in and day out for 10 years. And so when you are so far into it, it's hard to know anything else, right? And and you've got to work so hard to get any opportunities. You've got to let it become um, kind of all-encompassing. It's the only way to survive because if you're not going to do it, the other person is, and so they're going to get the opportunities. But then how do you turn that off? And how do you how do you then get to the point of having a balanced kind of working life? Like, you know, I'm at this stage of life now where I have a small child and things like that and you can't lock yourself away for three or four days and do nothing but write when you've got a child that demands your attention you know you you have to try to build some more sense of equilibrium into the way that you work and the way that you think about your work and that's what i'm not that's a wrestling match at the moment yeah, is it yeah yeah and possibly will be throughout too. I mean, how do you feel about that? Because I've always felt like what a downside to uh, being a creative person or having a creative job is that my head is always somewhere else. Um, I'm always off thinking about the things that I'm writing about. So I'm, I'm, there's, that's always putting something of a distance between me and the, the people that, uh, are close to me, like my family. Uh, what's that been like for you as a performer? Because also as a performer, as an actor, you 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 have to inhabit these characters, right? Like in the build-up to any job, you have. You, I mean, you have to walk in the shoes of other people. So, how's how do you manage that with 
keeping as healthy and normal life as you can. Well, in my case, you don't. <laughs> yeah, right. What about now, though? What you about crash and the, burn. the last three years? I've had to learn to do that. Mm. And I've had to learn to do that in order to stay well. Mm. Um, and it's yet to have been tested mm. under, yeah, un, right. under intense battlefield conditions, yeah, sure. if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I don't know yet, but maybe uh, in a year's time we can yeah. revisit this yeah. conversation. And I mean, it's interesting that the jobs that you've been doing more lately are kind of writing jobs and kind of things like that, but yeah. that one step away from the kind of front line of battle. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm not surprised. I mean, you were, there's the article that you were the kind of subject of in the last couple of weeks too, again, about the issues around mental health and things in people working in the creative fields. And there's been a range of those studies that have happened um, recently and they really need to happen because it is a massive problem. It's, it's not just the fact that we're poor um, and that brings in a whole lot of kind of issues of mental health. Um, but the work is obsessive. Um, and to and going back to money, to make a living, you have to work above and beyond and you have to do so much for free too. But, but it's not, it's never a job that you can leave at the office, right? Like it's, it's like kind of ghosts and demons that are with you all the time. Yeah, and the devil's, devil's advocate in, uh, will, will turn and say, well, then get another job across the world at every time uh, of history there have been people saying well don't do it get another job um, but across the world at every time of history every society has needed stories told and has needed art made like it's happened everywhere it's we we as a species need it um, and and it's because for me I think it's because you know humans great uh, kind of weapon, you know, snakes have venom, um, lions have claws and we have imagination um, and vivid imagination and that allows us to think, well, it's going to be cold so uh, I need to wear a fur um, and what's life going to be like over those mountains and that's also why we tell stories and why we create art. It's keeping our weapons our weapons of survival primed and so we, we need it like it's it's an essential part of who we are and it's our job to be doing that like there's hunters gatherers and storytellers maybe hunters gatherers storytellers nurturers but yeah and bankers <laughs> so oh bankers right yes That was episode eight of Making Art. My goodness, episode eight, and they said it wouldn't last. My thanks to Tom Holloway for allowing me into his creative space. Colom for Saxophone Quartet, our theme music, was composed by Melbourne's Tim Dargaville and performed by Sydney's Continuum Sax. Artwork for the podcast and the Making Art website is by Melbourne artist Darren Henderson of Dirty Good and our website was designed by Scott at Pixel Shifter. Technical production is by Ben Churchill at Sonic Playground and the show was produced by me, Neil Piggott. 
Join me in a wee while when I will present the first episode of the next season of Making Art. I've just decided to call it Season 2. From Ballarat, where I will speak with the woman responsible for the first Biennale of Australian Art, a massive collection of new, specifically commissioned works by over a 100 Australian contemporary artists now exhibiting in a number of venues all over Ballarat. It's a glorious celebration of Australian contemporary art that runs until the 6th of November, and I'll be speaking to the woman behind it. Julie Collins on the trials, tribulation and triumphs of supporting and publicly showing Australian artists. That's the next episode of Making Art. And don't forget to check out Australia's number one arts pages at The Daily Review and our website, www.makingart.com.au. And look, while you're there, if you've got any suggestions for who you might like to hear me have a conversation with, drop me a line. And if you've got any ideas about someone who might like to sponsor the podcast, well, fill me in. We'll leave you now with a little bit more of the opera South Pole with libretto by this week's guest, Tom Holloway. Thanks for joining me. See you soon. the flake, each with a hand on the pole. Look at me. Not for your captain, for the king, if anything. Come on!